Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time of worship. And I pray that we would have that picture like we just sang about with the angels gathered, with you on your throne and with us at your feet, God, that we would hear you today, that we would hear your word in a way that maybe we've never heard it before. So would you just speak to us, God, and let my words be your words and your word be in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name is Rob Jacobson, and I am so excited that you're here today. We are finishing, uh, well, technically last week we finished this series called Outlasters, and rather than uh, tell you about my outlasting life or my t-shirt quilt, I'd like to share with you what I think someone else that lived a truly outlasting life and still lives a truly outlasting life would have on their t-shirt quilt today. So, um, I think this t-shirt quilt would have a shirt that says, born during the big one. Then he'd have a shirt that would say, teachers do everything with class. Then a shirt that says, um, be all you can be. Then another shirt that, uh, this might seem like it's out of left field, it'll make sense in a moment. Case implements, red, farm equipment. Um, another one for the University of Minnesota. And finally, one that says, Century Man. And the reason why I think this uh, is worth bringing up is uh, the video that we're going to take a look at here that shows someone who I believe has lived a truly outlasting life. So take a look and see if you agree. News team's Neil Carlson looks back on the life of this amazing World War II veteran. When Valley City native Alan Peterson was born 100 years ago today, World War I was raging in Europe. And here at home, most people either walked or rode horses for transportation. On December 7th, 41, Pearl Harbor Day, I immediately told my wife that I was going in right away. Peterson was already 25 years old and had been working as a teacher for five years when he enlisted in the Army for World War II. He served in North Africa and Italy during the Battle of Anzio, where he lost many friends. One night, uh, they got 17 and one uh, bombing one night. Uh, Four killed and the rest of them were wounded. But uh, it was... It was tough going. Peterson spent most of his working life managing case implement dealerships, along with being a master gardener. He and his late wife, Frida, donated this garden plot to UMC after spending years donating the produce from their gardens to the community. We invited people over to come over and get things. We had pretty good traffic in the fall at our place. (laughs) So how many years did you give away produce? Oh, about 30, 35. So, what's the secret to his long life? Well, Peterson says he quit smoking back in the 1930s, and he hasn't had any alcohol since he was 81 years old. I don't know. I get <laughs> quite a bit of exercise. I take exercise five, five mornings a week here. And uh, even when I was working on the road, I tried to get quite a bit of exercise. Whatever the secret, it's working for Alan Peterson. In Crookston, Neil Carlson, Valley News Live. Now check out the number of people that are in that birthday shot at the end. See, I don't think that Alan Peterson just lived a long life and a well life. I think he lived an outlasting life. I mean, it takes some guts to 
to give yourself to the military at 25 after you've been working for five years. Most people don't do that. It, it also takes something, though, to say that, um, oh, we're just going to give away all this produce year after year. In fact, when that garden that you saw was dedicated two years before this, his response or remark was, you know, God bless America and God bless our garden too. And uh, I think God had already been blessing their gardens because for 30 or 35 years, they'd been giving away the things that had been produced from this land that had sprouted up. And even before that, when he was a teacher and a high school football coach, he was seeing young men and young women sprout up and grow in their faith, and he was pouring into them in the same way that he was pouring into a garden. And to have that many people in their 80s and 90s at the end of his life is pretty darn amazing. I kind of think, you know, if I did make it to be 100 years old, who would actually come and visit me? But if you and I lived like Alan Peterson, there would be plenty of people that would come. What made his life so outlasting? You know, we see in the scriptures that, that Paul the apostle had an outlasting life. He, he did things that most people never did. He truly made it to the very end of his life as faithful to Christ as he had been on the day that he hit the Damascus road. And so I just wanna take a look at today. I think Jesus wants us to look at the pictures of what it means to do this because most people, they don't last until the end. They have fuzzy pictures of what it would look like. They kind of talk about their t-shirt quilt and say, oh, you know, if they can they can really answer that question of what would make their t-shirt quilt. I think it's kind of all over the place. Oh, I'd have this, and I might have this, and I might have this. But to have this focus, this crystal clear picture of what it would look like to be faithful to the end, that's what I think God calls us to. So if you have a Bible, we're gonna be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's something that if you do read a lot of scripture, you probably skip over much of what we're gonna read today. But in this, I see four crystal clear pictures of what God calls us to to make it to the end. So in 2 Timothy 4, we're starting in verse six. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, all who have loved for his appearing, all who want to see to the end. See, what I think Paul has here is he has a crystal clear picture of God's vision for him. He has a crystal clear picture of God's vision for his life. He says at the beginning of his life, when he starts down this missionary road, he takes any opportunity to tell people about it. If you go into the book of Acts that talks about how Jesus worked through his disciples after his resurrection, you'll see in chapter nine, it tells the story or testimony of Paul becoming, uh, Saul becoming Paul on this road. And then you'll see in Acts 22, I believe, him tell the story again of his life. And then in Acts 26, he tells it again. Now, why would in a 28 chapter book, this testimony be in there three times? The only thing I can think of is that this was how Paul lived. Any chance I get, any time that I could tell how God has worked in me, I have this vision for my life to share this with anyone that they might know. And that's what he does. 
In fact, in Acts 26, he's talking to two kings, one, or I guess they're Roman governors, but one is actually called a king, King Agrippa. I know, funny names that we'll look at here in a moment, but he tells the story again, and these kings and governors are waiting for Paul to bribe him out of prison. This is his first arrest. He is awaiting trial. He's appealed to Rome, and they, they keep bringing him in because they're mildly curious about this this whole thing called the way. They've heard lots of stories of Jesus. In fact, both of them have read the Old Testament prophets, and so they, they keep bringing him in, partly because they're interested, partly because they want to hear a bribe. And so he just doesn't care. He takes the opportunity, and he says, about noon, your majesty, well, I was walking along this road, and suddenly a, a, a light that shined brighter than the brightest heaven, it struck me on the road, and I, we all fell down, and I heard this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, Jesus, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And, and he says, now, get on your feet, for I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness, so t- you will tell people about me that you have seen me, and you will show them what I'm going to tell you in the future. I will rescue you from both the power, or I will rescue you from both your own people and from the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the people that your people said you'd never go to. I'm sending you to the Gentiles, that they may turn from the darkness to the light, that they may turn from the power of Satan to the power of God, and they will receive forgiveness of sins, and they will be given a place among God's people who are set apart by me in faith. And so, he says to that king, I obeyed that vision from heaven, and I take any opportunity to tell this, and I've said it when I first was in Damascus, and I've said it throughout Judea, and I've said it in Jerusalem, and I've said it to the Gentiles that all might repent of their sin and turn to God and prove that they have changed their life by the good things they've done. It's like Paul never got tired of telling the story of how God worked in him, not for his glory, but because someone else might turn to God in that moment as well. And actually, after he finishes this, the kings or these governors actually say, you're out of your mind. And he says, no, no, no. No, kings, I am not out of my mind. No, you've read the prophets, haven't you? Don't you want to become a Christian too? And they kind of mock him and send him away, but they ask again. See, Paul has this crystal clear picture of God's vision for his life that everything he does is filtered through this. Now, I don't know about you, I haven't had a vision of Jesus, but a friend of mine was just reading a book called Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And I have a friend who's actually over in a Muslim country, and he says one of the most common ways that Muslims become Christians is through visions from Jesus. Visions of Jesus. Jesus hasn't stopped giving visions. He wants to see people come to him, and he'll do it whatever way he can. We often get distracted. We often forget that God might want to use us. So what is that crystal clear picture for you? For me, it is that God has called me to invite people who are ordinary, everyday followers to actually become impact contributors for the kingdom. That's what he's called me to. My nickname in high school was JV. In college, my my varsity coach, he kind of laughed at me, but he let me on the team. And I have been one of those people who've been almost a second thought 
of joining a team, but once I'm on the team, people are like, wow, you actually can contribute something. And so, and I, 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 I'll take it, because that's, I think, God's vision for me, is that people who might be overlooked in life would actually get to play a part in God's kingdom in a mighty way. What is that vision for you? And if you've gotten it, have you lost the focus? What picture do you need to see so that you can remind yourself every day that you are put here for a purpose? And it's not just to make money. It's not just to find a mate. It's not just to raise good kids. It's not just to have a good job. It's not just to believe in God and go to church. That's not a big enough vision. But that everyone might see Jesus and turn to him. That they might go from darkness to light. That is a vision. And that's what Paul has. It's just so crystal clear. You know, if... If this 100-year-old guy, Alan Peterson, was asked what his vision for his life was, I think he might say, he's probably too humble too, but I think he might say, sharing my strength for the benefit of others. I mean, think about it. A guy who's 25 and has been working and doesn't need to be drafted voluntarily enlists, that's sharing his strength for the benefit of others. A guy who gives himself to education to train the next generation and to build up young men in the game of football, that is a vision. Going into farm equipment dealerships and managing them so that not only the employees benefit, but also these farmers who will in turn give us produce so that we can live, that's vision. And finally, to give away so much of your produce that at the end of your life, giving a garden, a huge garden plot, is is nothing. I think his vision would be sharing my strength for the benefit of others. See, one day, one day, you and I are all going to stand before God. I mean, Paul says it. He says, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He is the judge. We will get either reprimanded rewarded or removed. And so have, if that, if, if it takes kind of being a little scared, picture Jesus as the righteous judge. Not to, not to base getting into heaven on our works because I think, I think I'll be reprimanded a little bit. I don't know if I used every opportunity, but I won't get thrown out of heaven because I have claimed Jesus as my savior but we'll all be judged. So Paul focused on this picture of Christ for him, this vision of Christ's vision for him, but he also saw this picture of Christ working through him. He had this picture, this crystal clear picture of Christ working through him. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Hey, get Mark and bring him too because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And I sent Titicus to Ephesus. It's like this kind of afterthought moment. But, but you know, I kind of wonder if Paul had Twitter. I don't know how many of you tweet, but if Paul had Twitter, I kind of wonder how many people would actually follow him because they like him, because they're filled by him, because they um, are taught by him, and how many people would follow him because they really despised him and they wanted to know where he was so they could oppose him. 
Because everywhere he went, he had opposition. He had opposition from the Jews, he had opposition from the Gentiles, and he just knew that part of his vision was fighting the good fight for the faith, not just to fight people, but not only did he face opposition, he also faced disappointment. I mean, I never really studied this guy Demas before, but, but Demas shows up in Philemon 24. I think, do we have, do we have Philemon? All right, so... He's, he's talking at the end of his letter to Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in the Lord Jesus, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Demas was on Paul's varsity team. Demas was one of the guys that he sent out on mission for Jesus. Demas gave his life to Jesus and the work of the gospel with Paul. And in Colossians, he actually shows up again with very little comment. And then sometime later, we get this. We get for Demas, because he longed for the things of this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica had a great church. Things were going well in Thessalonica. Maybe he was from Thessalonica. But in this world, there are things that pull us away from God. It's like if you're on a lake. I was on a, I was on a lake yesterday with my kids, and, and we, were, we were like, oh, it's not very windy. Well, sir, sir, we can take the kayak and the paddleboard out. It'll be fun. And all of a sudden, you know, going to the island was a lot easier than going back from the island because even without wind, there was this drift that was pulling us away. And in life, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, there are things that pull you away from Jesus and pull you towards this world. Demas didn't do anything horrible. He wasn't a devil. Julie, I would still hire you with the sun devil. It's okay. He wasn't a devil. He didn't bail on Paul because he betrayed someone. Demas just got to a point where he said, you know, the cost of the cross outweighs the benefit and blessing of the cross, and he left, and he went back. Maybe he was from there. Maybe, maybe just like the church. But I think of nothing that can pull us away from the cross more than comfort. I don't know if it's just because we're from America or if it's just because I'm getting older. But the comforts of this world are one of the biggest things that pull us away from God. I was talking to some missionaries. Um, that have spent time in the Ukraine, in Belarus, in Poland. I mean, these are countries where you can't have a Bible in public. These are countries where if there are four people are gathered, it's considered a church gathering and you have to be a registered church group. Imagine doing ministry in a place like that. Almost daily, here's one of the questions they ask themselves. What does it cost you to follow Jesus today? What does it cost you to follow Jesus today? I wonder, when's the last time you asked that question to someone? Because I don't think I've ever asked that question to someone. I think Paul asked that question a lot. This is what it costs to follow Jesus, friends. 
but I would not give it up. I'd go back to jail. In fact, I'm in jail. This jail is so much worse than the last jail. The last jail, I had this house arrest. I could send letters easily. People could come and go. Luke is the only one with me now. Demas just decided at the end of his life, he just decided it wasn't worth it anymore. I mean, this is what John Calvin wrote. We shouldn't assume that Demas completely denied Christ. Only that he cared more for his own convenience than for the life of Paul. Staying with Paul meant troubles and irritations and a real risk to his life. And eventually, he was overcome by the cost of the cross and decided to look to his own interests. Comfort. I think it's a huge pull. Something we need to be on guard for. But maybe yours is money. Maybe it's intellect. You know, if I can just keep studying, if I can just keep studying. Might be possessions. My possessions possess me. Of course, it could also be sports and achievements. More and more, I think it's an online presence. I wonder what, how I'm being perceived by the world out there. And also relationships, whether it's family or friends or the relationship that everybody needs to get, especially if they're single. One of my single friends shared that she would have died 10 years ago if you would have told her that she'd still be single now. Because I think her picture was that God worked for those who believed in him. God worked for those who believed in him. But, but instead, her picture changed to God works through those who let him work in them. God works through those who let him work in them. And as she has let God work in her, God has worked through her. She said she's had so many more amazing opportunities to work for God because she's been single than, than she could ever imagine being married. It's not that she doesn't want to be married. It's just that she's accepted that God is working in her and through her, and he'll wait for his timing. I wonder if we could have that kind of a prayer. To pursue Christ's work in us and through us is just to say, God, I'm yours and I'm available and help me to see and hear whatever you have for me. If you've prayed that prayer and you consistently pray that prayer, I promise you, God will give you opportunities because you're faithful and you're being available. And if you start being obedient, he will do amazing things through you. That picture we need is crystal clear clarity around Christ's work through us. How can you pursue that? Because Paul still had disappointments. He pursued that, and he pursued a faithful group of friends. He asked for specific people. He's like, hey, Demas has deserted me, but Timothy, you gotta come. Cretans is gone, Titus is gone, Titicus is gone, Luke's with me, bring Mark. I mean, think about those names first of all. Think about those names. Paul asked for Timothy, John Mark, and Luke. Because it's not just enough to say, I'm gonna be focused on being faithful to Jesus, I'm gonna be focused on faithful friends, I gotta be focused on God's word in me. I would actually say God's word over me. It's the third, third picture I think we need to have. Timothy says, or Paul says, when you come, bring the cloak 
that I left with Carpus. Poor guy. Who would want to be named Carpus? I mean, do you get called Car or Carp or Pus? I don't know, but it's just bad. Bring the cloak that I left at Carpus and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now, Paul was a rabbi. He was the rabbi's rabbi. Paul had every, probably Paul had every Old Testament book memorized. So why would he ask for the scrolls and the parchments? I think it's because even though God's word was in him, he needed God's word over him. He needed to be reminded of these truths from some outside source. See, when he was a Pharisee, he would stand over the scriptures and study them and scrutinize them and explain what the rabbis had said. But he had learned after becoming a follower of Jesus that he has to lift up Christ's words, the words of God, and have them read him. And he's got to tell Luke, Mark, and Timothy before the end that this is how they need to read God's word, have God's word over them, have that picture, that crystal clear picture that Jesus incarnate and Jesus in his written word stands over them to read them. Imagine if they didn't come. Paul, Luke, John Mark did not write their parts of the New Testament. Friends, that would be almost three quarters of the New Testament gone. Maybe those parchments and maybe those scrolls contained actual gospel, early gospel accounts. Maybe Paul had started to write down what he had seen and heard from Jesus himself. Maybe he wrote it down from James, the brother of Jesus. Maybe he wrote it down from Peter. Maybe he wrote it down from John because he had hung out with all those people. Maybe those parchments were his notes of what he had written about meditating on the scriptures and he desperately wanted them. I think we need to relook at how we look at the scriptures. Next week, we're starting this series for seven weeks called Get Wise. It's a study of Proverbs, wisdom, get wise. And it goes through seven of the mega themes of Proverbs. And I am telling you, this has been amazing. If you've never read Proverbs, it has so much wisdom for us. But we have to hear it and we have to let it read us. And if you've never had that idea of instead of you reading scripture, letting scripture read you, I offer that as the third crystal clear picture of what it means to outlast until the very end. And as far as the cloak, Jesus knows Paul, or Paul knows Jesus, Jesus knows Paul. Paul's heard Jesus say, I believe, don't worry about what you wear, don't worry about what you eat. Isn't God going to take care of you? So why would he ask for it? Might he be so desperate to have this piece of clothing to stay warm for the winter? Might he be truly concerned about the end of his life? This isn't some mega giant. This is some ordinary human being that has been faithful to Jesus. It's, it's someone that you and I can follow as he followed Christ. And finally, the last picture is this picture of Christ beside him. Paul had this crystal clear picture of Christ beside him. After he tells Timothy to watch out for the guy who opposed him, this Alexander the Terrible, the metal worker, he says, at my first defense, 
No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But may it not be counted against them. Because the Lord stood at my side and gave me the strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles and that they might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth, probably Rome, that the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul, he didn't just have this this idea of Jesus. He'd seen Jesus. He knew that Jesus Christ was in him through the Holy Spirit, but also stood beside him. He doesn't have any bitterness that no one came to his defense. It's not like he's saying, you know, uh, I was really lonely. I felt abandoned. No, he said, yeah, people left. I'll be real. They deserted me. But I wasn't alone because Christ stood beside me. What does your picture of Jesus look like? Um, there's a story, you've probably seen it in a book or a movie. It's obviously, I care about it. It's a great story, but it's a story of this kid named Colton Burpo. Colton was four years old, four months after an emergency appendectomy surgery he started telling his parents about how he'd seen visions of heaven and Jesus. And he kept telling stories that his dad, who was a pastor, couldn't deny. Like, this is what the scriptures say. And so they asked him over and over about these stories. And a couple of them were, uh, well, heaven is, is made of silver and gold. It's really shiny. And the, the gates of heaven are gold with pearls on them. And, and there's so many more colors in heaven than, than we have on earth. And the flowers and the trees are beautiful. And, and there's animals of every kind, including Jesus. He has this rainbow-colored horse and dogs and birds and, and friendly lions. And Colton says that he sat on Jesus' lap at one point and that Jesus had brown hair and hair on his face and his eyes, he just said, were so pretty. And, and, and Jesus had these markers that were on his hands and on his feet. He thought they were like coloring markers. He's four. And he had this purple sash and a gold crown with this pinkish diamond in the middle. And when his parents started asking him what Jesus looked like, they started scouring for pictures and scouring for pictures. Finally, it wasn't until this eight-year-old prodigy from Indiana, this um, girl painted, a, who, who had never had any TV, never had any radio, her parents were just super secluded, but atheists, she starts having these visions of Jesus meeting her. Her parents actually start believing in God because of the pictures that she would draw and talk about. And this was one of the pictures that she had drawn. And Colton said, that's, that's Jesus, that's what he looks like. And Paul said, the Lord stood beside me. Even more important than your picture of Jesus is where he stands in your life. When you go to the grocery store, Jesus stands beside you. When you stand up in front of a group of people, Jesus stands beside you. When you go in to talk to your boss about whatever you need to talk about, Jesus stands beside you. If you started to see Jesus beside you, not only God's Holy Spirit in you, but Jesus beside you, do you think it would change the way that you walked? 
Do you think it would change the places that you went on the internet? Or, as my parents used to tell me, would it change the way that you and your girlfriend sit on the couch when you watch the movie? Because he's there, and it worked. And, sorry, it just did. Thought you needed a really good picture. But he'll go everywhere you go. When three Jewish teenagers were told that they needed to bow down to a pagan king, and if they didn't, they would be thrown in a furnace, they said, you know what? We are not going to bow down to you, even if you throw us in the furnace. So he did. He threw them in the furnace, and as he looks in the furnace, the evil king sees not three people in there, but four, and they're dancing, and they are not burning up. Is it any wonder, friends, is it possible that the pre version of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, was standing beside them as well. As we go into a time of worship and communion, what are the pictures that you need to focus on? Is there one of those four that God is going to speak to you right now if you ask him? Christ's vision for your life. Christ's work in your life working through your life. Picture of God's word over you, not you over it. And a picture of Christ beside you. See, this, this is what it means to live the outlasting life, to pursue one of these pictures with clarity because it's way too easy to drift. We all get pulled. Here's a couple of my pictures. These are right in front of my desk in my house. First, there's a picture of my wife and I. We're on the back of my parents' boat, and we've been married for about two months, right? Two months? I love this picture. It reminds me of what Solomon says in Proverbs. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, that behind Jesus, she has to be first in my life. This is a picture that I need to have to pursue an outlasting life. Then I've got this picture called Priorities. It's a picture of a little boy looking out at the ocean. It says, 100 years from now, it won't matter how big my bank account was. It won't matter what my house looked like. It won't matter what kind of clothes I wore. But the world could be different because I made a difference in the life of a child. I got that picture when I said yes to God to go into ministry and leave teaching. And I remember that that might cost me something. But I need pictures, and I think you do too. And then there's a picture of a swimmer, because I was a swimmer. It said, the will to win and the spirit to excel is measured one stroke at a time. See, I'm not very smart, but if I can just be smart, a little smart, a lot of the time, then I'll get there. And I need a picture that every day matters. One little decision matters. And finally, the fourth one that you don't see is a cross right above my desk that says, the thorns give us the crown. That says, the nails shed the blood that save us. That talks about the cost of Christ, but also the blessing of Christ. These are the pictures. These are what I need. I take a couple more minutes just to show you that this isn't something that I'm talking about. This is something I'm living. Now, as we go to communion, ask God what those pictures are for your life. What do you need? He wants you to live the outlasting life. Amen.